excited today to welcome you all to a new episode of Coloring on Walls. I am very happy to announce our guest today, who is Shivani Sharma. She is a museum professional. She is a history nerd, and more than anything else, she is one of my really, really, really close friends. So, also to Shivani Sharma, how did you color your walls this week? Hey, hi. Uh, first off, this is the first time someone's used my full name in a very long time, so I'm a little bit, uh, uh, yeah, thrown off by that. I don't know if I'm in trouble with the principal or if uh, things are cool. Uh, but <laughs> hi, thank you for having me on your podcast that I absolutely do not listen to and I'm absolutely not invested in in any way. Uh, but to debunk what I just said, uh, I know what coloring on walls, uh, what your question means. I can think of a very simple thing that I did, which is that I, um, so I buy a new pair of shoes every year because I walk a lot. I buy a new mm. pair of walking shoes mm. every year and I have uh-huh. massive feet uh-huh. because uh, that's just who I am. So I always buy shoes from the men's section and quite often that includes right now obviously because of the lockdown I'm not going anywhere so it's all been online but uh, usually it means I walk around the streets of Jaipur and I have to go into shops and physically explain to men that no do not show me into the women's section don't you dare I'm not going to pay 1500 rupees for a pair of shoes that are like 600 rupees if you buy them as a man so uh, yeah I think that's one uh, very laid back way in which I colored my walls this week. I went and I bought my shoes and I uh, didn't let them challenge my femininity because, uh, you know, capitalism. That is really interesting. Um, Also because I have very large Mm -hmm. feet and um, but I really am fond of the feminine aesthetic in the shoes, which is like, so it's like I, whenever a shopkeeper is um, like, why don't you look at the men's section? Don't you dare. <laughs> yeah, I'm the opposite. <laughs> I just want something to run in. I don't need the butterflies. Thank you. <laughs> Polar uh, ways of coloring your walls. But hey, that's what it is, yeah. right? You can do it in whichever way you want. And that's what yeah. it means. Just be comfortable with yeah. what you on are a, doing. It. On an off topic thing, can I just tell you when the podcast first came out? So when I listened to the first episode... And uh, I really mm-hmm. liked the ideas that sort of I liked your explanation of why you've called it what you've called it. So I casually and you know, you I remember uh, that you talked about how sort of you used to color on walls and it was a, a part of expressing yourself and part of building something. So I went and I asked my mm-hmm. mom, uh, hey mom, have I ever uh, colored on walls? <laughs> um, and I just want to say thank you because thanks to your episode and your podcast, I got an a lecture that lasted approximately 40 minutes about how <laughs> no I never did because I was always worried about convention and I was always a people pleaser um, and it became a psychological assessment essentially uh, so thanks you guys my relationship with my parents is as strong as ever <laughs> <laughs> you know that is one thing that even when Bhavya was talking about uh, how she colored her words in my mind I was playing it back like how Every time, every like uh, six months, mm-hmm. I used to do something around my walls, whether put up some poster that I made or put some wallpaper that I made, but something other on the walls in my room, it'd always be right. there. And it would keep changing every six months or every year because obviously That's the same thing are. is so boring. Yeah, people change. All the years. <laughs> yeah. But if I do show you guys my pictures of my old room uh, like the, during the school time you won't find a single white space something or the other is going on to the point that it becomes disturbing for some people <laughs> and in contrast to that now as an adult oh. i like to keep my walls clean. pristine yeah. and clean my mom um what uh, she used to make me do was um if i wanted to color on walls i was allowed to do that with crayons and with like pencils and everything else but I uh, needed to take um, uh, water in a mug and uh, a, a rough cloth and clean the walls after that. Of course. So that was <laughs> Taking responsibility for your actions. No wonder you're so sorted, Bhavya. <laughs> you know, I, I used to practice math on walls with a chalk. 
ियलिटी I uh, started thinking about some of the things that I uh, learned as part of say my degree in history at the undergrad level but also later when I went and did a masters in museum studies and mythology when you look at it essentially it's so it's it's different from history right because history is something that is it's a study of facts history is a study of dates of events of things that we know happened uh and we know that there were very concrete time frames and reasons why these things happened mythology is more like a i think mythology is more it's not factual but it's more a justification or a something that seeks to explain a lot of what we don't know so for example i was um, mm. i remember thinking of it this way that mythology does inform who we are and for a lot of us it is sort of part of our collective history as people because it is so embedded in who we are culturally and who we are in lot of these other identities it's so closely linked to religion for instance but really what it is is it's a way that human beings uh decided to uh rationalize what they couldn't understand and what they couldn't explain and it's a way it's it's a, a tool that human beings have used to look to uh sort of uh understand things like pheno- like uh, natural phenomena to understand things like why do we behave this way uh to understand psychology and uh, so a large part of mythology is that it's just you trying to justify hey why am i like this uh and the reason for that you know it's of course science is a very fun way science dissecting something scientifically is great and that's very new but before we had science we had stories of gods and goddesses and magical creatures and things that they brought to this planet and things that they gave us and that's the reason why we are who we are so the reason i think to go to your question the reason why it whether i think it affects who we are now absolutely and the reason for it is because it has become so closely knit with politics and with religion because mythology is the kind of thing where it's just relatable enough where you feel like it has something to do with you but it's also just different enough where you don't question things like logic because you assume ki this these things are happening at a different plane and so human laws don't exist i i agree i agree uh, i mean mythology initially started as something to gives a spatial temporal quality to principles of human life in mm-hmm. every context yep. to just make people imagine what that principle was talking about rather than you know just having a line oh don't do this exactly don't, or do it like this so it was just a conceptualization and i will say a very imaginative conceptualization mm-hmm. of principles but the way that now why we discussing this about it in our times is that like you mentioned how it has the disparities between religion politics and mythology have sort of mushed together so, yeah. and the original original uh, point of view of mythology why it existed has been lost oh totally because narratives i feel narratives from mythology have always influenced human 
uh, preoccupations for ages mm-hmm. like how even today our concept perceptions are formed are using those stories that we heard from our formative years that is why also mythology right. has is such an integrated part of our life because it's existing since we were kids totally i have two questions then um can we find some uh, historical context to a lot of mythological events then um and is it then those contexts contexts mm-hmm. make a uh, uh a certain narrative in mythology uh okay like for us to okay to believe that they they happened the way we are being told they happened uh yeah is there a historical context to mythology definitely and um, so i i guess the best way to talk about this might be through an example right so or something that really is essential to indian and hindu mythology is the mahabharat right so and it's an epic it's we know what it is we've all had to study it in some language or the other as part of our school training yeah. and the what the mahabharat is or what it started out so for people who don't know what the mahabharat is it is this massive i think it's like 20000 verses composed in sanskrit It's, it's the biggest uh, yeah biggest. it's a huge body of work that talks about amongst other things so amongst sort of telling you how to be a good human being and how to be a good hindu and things like that it also talks about it tells the story of these two warring clans and it it's a huge drawn out process so the way the mahabharat started was that it used to be a bardic tradition so it was something that a group of bards from a certain community i believe these uh, bards were from the suta community so they were charioteers and uh, it's something that they started doing i want to say in the third in like 300 uh, in the 3rd century bc so many 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 years ago and uh, so these were stories that they would tell and a lot of the stories were about uh, this heroic battle between these two clans Uh, the things that happened there the uh, the many victories and triumphs and the uh, ridiculous drama that followed at the borders of this massive battle the thing that changed is that as the centuries went by somebody decided and this was probably the kingdoms who are mentioned in the mahabharat they decided that you know this bardic narrative which at this point was just an oral tradition it was just being sung from one place or narrated from one village to another they decided that we want to codify this and write it down and write it down as itihas so the mahabharat is also called the mahabharat itihas which basically itihas translates to history in a modern connotation so what happened there is that uh, and this happened like about i want to say about 700 years later from when the initial song started what happened was that they decided we want to write these things down now when you write things down in india at that point in time there is a certain group of people a certain caste of people whose job it is to be the writer and the uh, keeper of the scriptures and those are the brahmins so it fell to the brahmins to start codifying and writing down the mahabharat and later we know that it's also attributed to someone called vedvyas to a brahmin known as vedvyas so he's mm-hmm. the, the so the brahmins as they started writing they realized that actually a lot of the things that were being talked about a lot of the um, legends and the stories that make up the oral tradition they're not great from a um, from a moral point of view because they didn't it didn't really match the world view that they were used to uh, talking about mm-hmm. and supporting so they changed things and one way in which they changed things is that they started incorporating a lot of hindu mythology into what was otherwise just an oral tradition so they took krishna who is a character in the mahabharat and they decided to um, sort of link him to vishnu who in indian mythology is oh. one of the larger you know oh. one of the three principal deities uh, so vishnu mm-hmm. became an uh, so krishna became an avatar of vishnu they yeah. uh, draupadi has multiple husbands in the mahabharat which was very problematic right. allegedly for the people who were writing down what they were now hearing so they changed it <laughs> they tried to give lots and lots of uh, 
explanation so which is why they started saying well kunti said that uh, share mm. what you have and you know you can't say no to your mother and, and so and also in her like previous right, words she prayed to shift so she for, got what she deserved she asked for yeah. her husband five times yeah. so then she had five husbands so a lot of these things mm-hmm. that were otherwise we don't know because oral tradition the unfortunate uh, side effect of an oral tradition is that you lose it as the community that's sort of singing about it or narrating it dies out but essentially mm-hmm. that's what happens so you know it's like it's like being given something to copy you copy your friend's homework your friend says you know yeah. you can you can <laughs> take a little change it a little <laughs> and so you change it just a little so that your own viewpoints come in and the teacher doesn't think you completely <laughs> and the cycle keeps on yeah. going with your younger sibling and their friends yeah. escaping traditional old plagiarism yeah. they incorporated strong hindu totally. sentiments into the mythology so that's why and that is why like even now indian history and mythology they are so closely linked to each other because at this point it's one has become the other right so correct, what correct. was what yeah. is imagined has become real and that is why like we know there are a lot of places in this country right now where uh, certain mythology and heroes in mythology are being invoked to justify a lot of problem <laughs> problematic policy making yeah exactly so it's yeah. like it's like they took Uh, practice what you preach really very hardcore. yes <laughs> <laughs> totally <And started. laughs> literally literally redefining their life from for what was meant to be just as a metaphor but if mm-hmm. i can understand uh, from what i'm uh, hearing uh, if i can understand uh, it's uh, basically history is the nut and um, mythology is the chocolate that surrounds the nut um so layers of chocolates get they keep on uh, getting added on as and when the chocolate is uh, being uh, transferred from people to people instead of like us biting into the chocolate and getting into the nut we are just adding more chocolate to the nut honestly like one of the things that i found extremely rid- crazy was the fact that it's not just india right mythology exists across the world yeah and exactly every yeah. culture yeah. has yeah. its own myths and its own beliefs yeah. myths that then drive beliefs that then drive like their political religious exactly. thought whatever mm. and mm-hmm. it's crazy if you look at it that way because we know that these cultures were not always interacting with each other they developed in parallel yeah. and they for at the beginning at least probably with no contact with each other because of logistical issues yeah yeah but there are so many similarities uh, i remember i had a class in uh, buddhism uh, archaeology of buddhism when i was doing my masters and i was the only indian person in that class everyone else was from everywhere else around the world so we had a couple of people from taiwan a few from china a few from uh, canada and so on and so forth and the themes that we were studying so we would often talk about creatures of mythology and uh, because it was all about sculpture and what not the stories that you would hear even though not all of us knew these stories everyone had a reference point within their own culture so there would be a story Absolutely. about a hero fighting a demon every culture has that there would be a story about yeah. you know an animal turning into a woman because the animal was cursed yeah. every culture has that uh, and that that to me is kind of ridiculous Even nature personified as gods yeah, yeah uh, the lightning god the yeah. god of water the god of even the god of afterlife um every culture is going to have that i am just always amazed that how uh, why aren't in mm-hmm. in those cultures then uh, these uh, sort of gods as idealized as in us like for us it's it's a living religion mm-hmm. for them it's something that's that's just mythology that's just like folk tales but not worship the way we worship our gods think the reason for that is also that um, you know in a lot of these places so greek mythology for instance a lot of the, that 
sort of the religion itself it didn't really make it alive as a mainstream religion right because christianity came in so like in a lot of different in a lot of the countries that we're talking about so be it germany be it greece be it uh, rome even because the roman gods we know exist what happened i think is yeah. that once christianity came in there christianity became the mainstream living religion that it, it is now so while those uh, so like you're you're right bhavya a lot of those gods and goddesses and the myths that they talk about they have been relegated to museum yeah. spaces now as sculpture and heritage studies uh, from that point of view but also yeah. it does manifest so you know there are certain festivals that although they've been incorporated into christianity they only they very specific to say greece and their origins are based in something related to the greek pantheon in india i think that's sort of what's happened is that hinduism still thrives and in many ways at least in its uh custom and uh performative in those areas sort of in the very what's the word i'm looking for i guess in terms of the customs that are being used a lot of it is still uh refers to puranic tradition to vedic tradition to whatever these other traditions are right yeah and i think it, this is also because like you mentioned how the colonization varied in mm-hmm. different contexts in european the colonization started way before yeah. and the preaching of christianity was much like with a firm hand yeah. and to establish settlements totally. the point was to establish settlements there in india the colonization was purely trade. on the basis of yeah. the trade and mm-hmm. uh, trade exchange and more yeah. of resource ex- resource extraction they didn't want to permanently settle down here no. so the preaching of christianity was not as firm handed yeah. another part is that before colonization we had mughal era mm-hmm. and mughal era as we know didn't have idols right so hinduism hinduism idols still managed to persist during the mughal era because the image of their god didn't exist totally and i think like even in india the the whole so the separation of history from mythology i don't think it's a very organic uh natural uh sort of uh reality in indian in an indian context and part of the reason why the divide started was i would say again colonialism the colonizers came in the british when they came in uh you know in the initial years so when the asi was set up and yeah. so the early centuries right after buxar so the 18th century uh Yeah when they came in they had to sort of justify their reason for being in India and that's when they started Correct. looking at archaeology and then because of archaeology at mythology they started looking at the gods and goddesses in the Indian pantheon and because mythology is a very european sort of field of study uh they started applying those binaries to the indian landscape and basically what they ended up achieving was that they started showing you ki oh india used to be a place with these uh, really high civilizations a lot of their stories mirror mm. greek civilization which or classical roman yeah. civilization which is which at, mm-hmm. at that time by the brits was seen as like the highest form of civilization and it was kind of what they were True. Uh, claiming to bring back in these poor barbaric deprived places Yeah, so they true. used they that's what they used mythology for they would say oh see look in the mahabharat for instance uh you have karan and uh, karan is so much like achilles in mm. greek mythology because Correct. he is an armored uh, warrior because he wears mm. uh, a shield like yeah. uh, like he has armor like uh, achilles he's one of the reasons why the big battle that's going to happen ends because he dies his mother like mm-hmm. achilles mother i think her name was thales i'm not sure uh, but whatever her name was uh, she banned him from fighting she said please don't fight against these people and mm-hmm. uh, karan does the same right kunti goes and tells him don't fight against the pandavas and that's why he doesn't mm-hmm. so these parallels came in very handy then for them and i think really mythology as a discipline in india that that is the point where people started trying to sift through the rubble and and uh, separate history from mythology which up until then i don't think anyone was even thinking about because how do you do that how do you establish historicity yeah. in a culture that doesn't even really think about history 
that was actually my next question that how do you uh, how do we begin doing that how do we begin uh, separating uh, um, mythology history and religion as three different i don't know if you do things. like i don't know if they would be free standing disciplines by themselves if you separated them i think they need each other religion without mythology would be an extremely boring venture if you look at it as someone who's a practicing hindu you take away the mythology you take away pretty much any ritual because when you think of different rituals they're all rooted in ki oh the reason you do this is because you know in this yog this happened mm. or in this yog this deity came down and did this uh, a lot of the festivals that uh, are part of hinduism so you know um, yeah. janmashtami yeah. for example dashera for example diwali even for example they're all rooted in myths yeah. they're all rooted in a story somebody was sitting and telling you all those years ago that have now that's now seem real to us because we've heard it so often and we've heard it from so many different uh, figures of authority and so many different institutions that we believe in right so yeah and i think religion also is then again uh, practicing your principles right yeah. practicing your values okay. and the story about the principles or context about principles is coming from mythology yeah so you're obviously like connecting the dots all the time because how do i practice something just because oh it is there it exists but yeah. i can't really internalize it unless until mm-hmm. i can connect to it and the connection comes via these stories like oh yep. like this is the person he did this or yeah. she did this and now there the consequence was that and everywhere that you hear these myths the person who's telling you or who's recounting this myth to you whether it be the brahmins mm. who wrote the mahabharat or the other oral traditions that exist uh they're all those people are adding their own sort of learnings right to it i i always wondered that why um mm-hmm. the mainstream in- interpretation of uh, uh these two larger uh, mythological tales uh, that inform our religion ramayana and mahabharat are both mm-hmm. written by men why is that that the time when these stories were being written it was uh, in terms of division of labor and whose job it was to do what yeah it was the men who had that position and uh, so when you think about it like again in terms of the mahabharat for instance there are so many other oral traditions it's not like a women's tradition does not exist there is a, so in tamil nadu for instance there is a retelling of the mahabharat that centers on draupadi and makes her the central character it completely ignores the whole uh, disrobing scene that is such Whoa. a main focal point of the main mahabharat instead it paints her as somebody who was uh, so here's the thing it doesn't want to make her seem violent or angry which yeah. is what the first edition does because in their head Correct. they also revere draupadi as one of their mother goddesses and the mother goddess that they've mm-hmm. ascribed to her is linked to compassion and kindness so draupadi in mm-hmm. this retelling is still very compassionate and kind but she is also presented as someone who is a reincarnation of this ah. goddess sent there to protect the pandavas so she becomes the protector versus so how does the disrobing scene play from that narrative i don't think it's talked about at all it's just not there in the narrative ah. yeah but then what was the linchpin of mahabharat like because from what i can recollect the whole war began because right. they of the gambling and then the lost draupadi and the, everything whenever i've reread mahabharat it always seemed like an inevitable war like even if like um the disrobing and uh, all of that didn't right. happen it always seems like that pandus uh, pandavas and uh, kauravas will always be, were headed to a war in any case yep. and mm. um, what i feel this north indian version of um, and the mainstream version of mahabharata does is it plays out this that every war mm. happens because of a woman um, and it sort of uh, yeah. make so again remember the myth may not have made the original song or the original narration of the bards 
may not have mentioned any of this at all for them it may have just been a war happened yeah. and these are all the characters mm-hmm. who did this what what is now informing your um, sort of your and my understanding of the mahabharat is what was written down and you have to remember the mahabharat was written down and it comes with a huge appendix known as the bhagavad gita which was added there True. to justify a lot of these things right it was added there so in perhaps the war happened but perhaps what was added there was like they have to now justify the war so what's the best way to justify uh, a war say that they were fighting for something good what is something good uh, protecting your wife dignity the of dignity the of your wife respecting the fact that she's super mad at these people for treating her yeah Yeah and not for a piece of land that was the actual yeah, and, thing and like forget for. and forget the fact that you gambled yeah. of this wife and you should not yeah. have been gambling human beings off in exactly. the first place Exactly but exactly. those are that's where bias comes in right certain things are acceptable certain things are less yeah. acceptable and therefore you sort of you get stuck with a very weird narrative I I was reading somewhere mm. they were like there was this point where the people who were who were writing down the Mahabharat uh they were so worried about certain things that they kind of forgot that they'd started a certain story and they only realized later <laughs> so for example somewhere i think uh, arjun has uh, you know once when arjun uh, the pandav is exiled at one point in the written down version he's been told ki you have to be celibate oh, yeah, for yeah, yeah, certain yeah, amounts of years yeah, because there's some yeah, conversation yeah. but in the book apparently if you read the whole thing closely uh, and if you read the sanskrit version they kind of forget that they did this because midway through his uh, <laughs> midway through his vanvas he sort of has marries ulupi and lives with her for a time a period of time you know it was a legit question in our textbooks how many wives this person yeah, had yeah for sure we had to do it too it's ridiculous <laughs> like you mentioned different perspectives from where the mythologies come from the dropadi's perspective duryodhan's perspective so let's talk about these rewritings mm-hmm. from a more female point right. of view so i think ibhave uh, was telling me about how uh, there's a ramayan version mm-hmm. from sita's point of view right. female retellings and more on to the point like how sita was portrayed and how different it is from the female re- version female retell- retold version of mm-hmm. have you ever rejected sita as a heroine um because she's been always portrayed as somebody who needs to be rescued and who's portrayed as somebody docile um and also whose behaviors are the behaviors we as women need to adopt um are always told that we need mm-hmm. to adopt uh, to have that sort of patience and to sort of prioritize the men in our lives first and this is all mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. one one version of the mind that right. i'm talking about so okay with the fem- women writing better women into her epics i am honestly honestly i am here yeah. for it and uh, i love the fact that uh, something like this is happening because like i said again mythology is something that's so inherent and so innate to us it dictates who we are and it is a projection of our psychology that doing that should really come naturally right because you are supposed to learn mm-hmm. from these characters so you're supposed to empathize with them or you're supposed to speak for them when you feel like oh maybe they've not been represented in the best light i really enjoy the fact that that's happening the thing i will say is that i don't think that in any of these cases the book itself is seen as yeah mythology it's seen as like alternative historical fiction or it becomes like a retelling mm, correct, but you're still kind of supposed to assume that the main original text is the yeah primary mm-hmm. one this is just a fic- fictional retelling of it yeah it's a fiction of the it's fiction it's a fiction of the <laughs> that's been as if the other thing yeah. is so rooted in history with <laughs> all the archaeological material <laughs> evidence that you need right so <laughs> which is i honestly enjoy it i think this is what this is what mythology is for it is yeah, yeah. it does provide you with a great sen- range of characters and we should yeah. be writing about them 
and people will take it seriously it's also that is also the beauty that it is something that i think will uh for me for instance if i see something and i'm like oh this is this is a retelling of this other epic mm-hmm. it does have an emotional connection i do connect with it on a higher level than say i would yeah. with a murder mystery yeah. book written yeah. in england right so honestly do it because if, even if you were telling us a completely fictional account what's happening is you are somewhere someone is questioning ki hey how come we never hear about the woman's point of view that this them doing yeah. this now is such a milestone and uh, you know so great we were talking about how sita was symbolized as the damsel in mm-hmm. distress right mm-hmm. on which the whole premise was right. built but then uh have you found any alternate versions where they don't portray her as the damsel in distress that there's this very interesting movie animated movie uh, sita sings the blues i don't know if either okay. of you have watched it yet um it's basically a animated movie no. and the style of animation is again indian narrative craft so um it's very interesting mm-hmm. to watch what it does is uh, sita sings the blues is, is it draws parallels between this uh, between sita ji and between this woman who has been cheated on by her husband and so i was like oh my god okay. and then how like this woman she comes out of it and she's like uh, she makes a career out of finding herself she first finds herself and then she makes a career out of that and i was mm-hmm. like wow this is like yeah i was just like there is a lot more to so i was just, there there's a lot more to the character of sita than what has what uh the men who have written ramayan would want you to believe i was just thinking about your uh, sort of um, about sita what stands out then is that we know that many narratives exist but some of these are okay narratives some of these are acceptable narratives and some of them then obviously there is a place mm-hmm. where you know there might be narratives that are not okay that we don't see So I was thinking of uh, when I was in college at uh, Delhi University I remember the that year the university had uh, banned an essay by uh, someone mm-hmm. called Ramanujan and uh, he d- mm-hmm. it was an essay about sort of it was I think it was called many ramayans and so it was about these different ramayan retellings from across uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia because Indonesia remembers also a very rich mm-hmm. uh, source of a lot of the cultural heritage that we associate uh, mythology with and i remember like there was outrage because they were talking about well you can't ban something that is so rich and so important from an academic p- point of view and at the time like right. one of the defenses that was being used by uh, the people into this was also again i think it was a it was a uh, according to reports i think it was like a hindutva group that had come out so self proclaimed self identified that way and uh, so one of the things that they had said was ki uh, no we're not banning it because we have anything against it we're banning it because in certain essays that you in certain excerpts in your essay you've talked about a version where uh, ravan is sita's mm-hmm. father and that's not okay with us or there's another version where ram mm-hmm. and sita are siblings and that's not okay with us so we're banning it from this sort of moral point of view where this is not okay with us again morality mm-hmm. is such a subjective uh, thing especially if you Correct. look at it across time zones and also remember these myths are not supposed to be like a they're not about they're not supposed to be something that you practice yeah. verbatim right you're not supposed to be like oh ram mm-hmm. went in Yeah. Uh, sort of made friends with a monkey king i will also do you're not supposed to look at it that way <laughs> uh, so myths are very symbolic the meanings that we've given to it those yeah. are human things that we i mean obviously the myth has also been created by the human but so has the meaning and therefore nobody has come down from a third plane to tell you about you know this is the meaning of this myth that is left to the viewer and i think that is to the reader listener viewer whatever and i think that's what we forget when we start getting too upset about you know there being a correct version that showcases these people in the right light and there being a not so correct version that uh, sort of tugs mm. at our own moral compass like that's i think that's where that's where the power play comes in right because if we start having this freedom of interpretations and narratives mm. 
the people who are currently yeah. in privilege and power exactly they'll be disturbed yeah. like oh my god why are we being yeah. questioned yeah? yeah you can't question the us the minute you know that there are other narratives you are at a very real there's a very real chance that you will lose control of the narrative because people will exactly. watch what they want to watch they'll listen they'll read the book series that they want to read you know if you tell them there's only one book and this is all you need prescribed reading yahi hai then that's a different matter yeah what about draupadi let's mm-hmm. also shine a light on draupadi's story so of course like i said in the in the epic itself in the in the actual book version of what we're supposed to read draupadi is kind of a a mixed bag right because she's not really very problematic because you kind of justified why she did what she did as part of a larger uh game of dharm mm-hmm. and game of you know the what was right uh and of course she i think i honestly did not have much of a problem reading draupadi in the original yeah uh in the original mm-hmm. uh text but also you realize that really what what's really gross about that and that is me putting a 21st century lens onto it is that she is an yeah. object essentially right in the initial book because she is talked about as somebody that the other brothers are sharing because the mother Correct. said this thing now i don't know why they never wrote a page where kunti realized oh no they're talking about an actual human being and she's like guys don't take me so literally didn't happen <laughs> so why that didn't happen i can't figure out right now that happens nobody challenges it we move on then i remember again reading somewhere that from the uh, now that we know that you know because what they were hiding was polyandry yeah. the fact that polyandry as a practice a woman marrying many people was okay in the original Correct. version what they were hiding was that but to kind of camouflage that they had to write in all these other reasons and justifications so one is the kunti sharing thing the other is uh you know a woman must be a virgin for her husband you cannot so every year she goes to a different husband um and every year she goes with her virginity intact so she has to walk through a waterfall and then she is brand new again as if you know and in a 21st century that is super gross to think about but that's because we have advanced to a point where we've questioned a lot of these uh, assumptions and these ideas that for maybe not being questioned as much 700 years ago 800 years ago i say 700 yeah. 800 that's not right because that is <laughs> this is much older than that uh you know it's it's like thousands of years old really 5th century matlab 15 plus uh, you know you mm-hmm. do the maths 21st century like bahut centuries hai and uh, so those are the things those are the things that were never told to us when we were studying it in primary school those are the things that came to me as i started reading it as an adult so many uh, people mm-hmm. i know have been named sita after sita ji from narayan mm-hmm. uh, ramayan but mm-hmm. nobody has been named draupadi right. even though both are like heroines of of these both tales so why yeah, yeah. are people not like why why do people not name their children after draupadi when you think about it perhaps draupadi is not the best name uh to give a child because maybe you don't want people to aspire to what she was and what she was is two things depending on what lens you look at it one is that she had really bad luck uh, she had five husbands and those husbands all went and married random people throughout their journey uh she had to live away yeah. from her house she had to live in a forest she saw wars she saw her children mm. die in war uh and so on and so forth her life is a tragedy her life is a tragedy and perhaps there is we are superstitious enough to say well we don't want to name our child that cuz you don't want see, to risk that, a self fulfilling prophecy right yeah but again the other way you can look at draupadi is that she and this is where this is what a lot of the oral traditions view her as she is somebody who endured she is somebody who had a very difficult life but she got on with it she uh, did what she could and 
yes she was selfish in a lot of the decisions like uh, refusing to tie her hair until she was avenged but you know mm. that's not necessarily a bad thing so what's different here yeah. is that she was perhaps more assertive exactly than and that too is and problematic that is not a good quality exactly. per se i'm quoting <laughs> for females exactly for me she always represented yeah. uh, ambition that a woman can and mm-hmm. that is what like uh, through mahabharat what i realized with time was that that is what mahabharat was trying to do to her is trying to teach her a lesson for being ambitious and being a woman but she always she always persevered and for me that was always inspiring uh, about her journey mm mm-hmm. but in general also speaking we're coming from where what mm-hmm. we were discussing like supranakha kekai draupadi all these women were very uh, active yeah. in taking actions and they've always been put yeah, down totally. like one person was mutilated other person was casted as the evil yeah. stepmother this person is like not as an idol for women to aspire so to the regular ramayan will tell you that shurpankha was a sister of ravan's right who just sort of went on and chilled in a lot of the other retellings she's actually a general so wow. she's part of the army and yeah. that brings that paints her in a completely different light right a general exactly. when assaulted yeah. would not go crying her, to her brother sort of a her brother you would think not if you've painted yeah. her with this brush where she's like this toughened war general but those are not perhaps those are not roles women. that are suitable for women and if women become like that then they they're not going to need protectors right so in order for mm-hmm. the protector to have centrality in the narrative the protector needs something to protect and the easiest thing to put in there then is a wife a sister a mother a another woman right. or child now how i see it especially after this conversation is that um these narratives the mainstream narratives have been crafted to protect mm-hmm. patriarchy and to hold uh, patriarchy in its place and to make sure that uh, you know institutions of marriages and institution of patrilineal society are protected to, and remain patrilineal um and that is how also women right. female characters and uh, gen- uh more genderless characters have been treated in these tales i think that's the point of mythology you're supposed to take what you can from it you're not supposed to take it verbatim and uh if you look at mythology in general i'm not saying indian hindu mythology is a bad thing i think there's a lot of comfort that can be found with certain characters and with certain places and things it's only just a matter of acknowledging that what you are reading is not mythology it's based in mythology but it's not the myth itself yeah and mm. you have to i think that's an informed decision not a decision but it's information you need right because if you were to take everything that the mahabharat says as the truth which also by the way there's no way of knowing what objectively is or isn't the truth uh mm-hmm. i think the purpose of mythology would be lost and because the purpose of mythology is to help you find the why yeah. the reasons for you know the answer to every why that you have about things that you can't really explain so like why is it this way why are humans around um the main aim of mythology is also applying your own interpretation you have to keep be very mindful like whatever mythology and whatever context and culture is mm-hmm. coming from you have to have your own interpretations yeah. you can't just take everything as the word so for me mythology is entertaining like it is it is yeah. complicated it is multilayered it is something that like it's it presents itself as a puzzle that you get to decode and that is what yeah. i find very entertaining about mythology like a- entertaining about any story that like even about flea bag totally. right uh and any <laughs> fictional story mythology is the embodiment of human imagination it's the 
points that there's yeah. so much that we can think of and achieve and so many stories that we can tell and tell them so beautifully that they start feeling real and they start and sort of every generation that's born is born with this innate archetype embedded in its head you know what i mean uh, that's the beauty of mythology it's a unifier it's yeah. it's sort of what has always been there and i think what will continue to be there because again like we've said uh, culture is not stagnant neither is mythology we've yeah. tried to stagnate it but it's not skip to a thousand years from now and who knows what the myths that perpetuate then will be who knows what what will have survived maybe harry potter will be mythology right it sort of already is if you apply certain uh, layers of uh, identification to it like you everybody goes to that little platform 9 and 3 quarters on um, at king's cross you know it's not real but it's so real to you first of first of september you're like hogwarts express wherever you are in the world again you know it's not real it's something someone else thought up but it feels so real to you and that's kind of what mythology also does these are not things that are real but they're just close enough to where we are currently existing that they feel real and for me a p- point of good a good story is that if i can see myself reflected in it and if i can uh, mm-hmm. find a way you know or i can find some reason yeah. into my existence if i see myself slightly reflected and if i see some reason oh, of my of 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 or some answers that i have or mm-hmm. uh, uh, or it leaves me with more questions then then i right. feel it's a good story even if it's a biography i'm reading even if it's korean dramas i'm watching or even if it is mythologies <laughs> but you know that's that's what i miss about like i always feel about mythology that i i wish there were evolving narratives yeah so our generation could have also related mm-hmm. to it yeah. as much as the previous generations did yeah. like they imbibed in themselves mm-hmm. but when i read mythology i don't look at it as something prince from the principal yeah. uh, guideline yeah. book i look at okay this is a storyline okay it happened it's relevant to my culture let's read about it so i am not historically lost but there's nothing that i would take it as okay let's go back to what mahabharat set or some point in some point of my life if i'm feeling lost mm-hmm. i wish there was a narrative that kept evolving according to the cultural context according to the relevance of it yeah but i also wish that all these um, like because i had the privilege to be in a design school that focused on crafts mm-hmm. i was exposed to uh, automatically mm-hmm. exposed to a lot of um, narratives that um smaller indigenous mm-hmm. communities practice uh, and tell still today so right. i really wish those narratives mm-hmm. would have a bigger platform today instead of being limited to uh, yeah. because those were the narratives that really made me uh, think that oh like there isn't just this one version of the story that i was made to believe growing up like it just didn't yeah. play out on doordarshan it was True. it is actually like there are so many different colors of narrative so i just wish that yep. um and a purpose of crafts has been to tell stories so i really wish that people would totally. go and um try and explore that so i think i think what the the take away from this is that mythology does not just exist in books yeah in order to you know truly experience all the facets of it you have to look at other things it's lurking in our yeah. dance forms it's lurking in uh, mm-hmm. classical dances it's lurking in yeah. bardic traditions in songs in um, mm-hmm. so i remember uh, doing projects on the indigenous people mm-hmm. that live in india right different communities they have their exactly. own alternative mm-hmm. mythology uh, around a lot of common themes a lot of the yeah. festivals that everyone sort of in mainstream hinduism celebrates but very yeah. nuanced differences because their understanding and their take away from this uh, story has been different and so mm-hmm. that's i think I that's yeah. that's probably what But, we're missing we look to books and the written word and of course by we i also mean people who are writing and making movies yeah. and other popular culture uh, versions correct, of correct. 
of um, mythology but there is so much more and it's pretty easily accessible if you know where to look for it and, and honestly do a lot of people who are working in those crafts uh it'll do them real real good if if there is uh if there are people interested in listening to them in i think it's also because it's it the awareness point of view comes in right, right. it's not present in pop culture or mm-hmm. the way mythology has been understood and propagated through, especially in our generation True. so we are not as such aware of these uh, alternative narratives or alternative mythologies in different cultures i mean you you know because you have specially looked into it because right. of your education or profession but for me i've never known of any other indigenous cultural uh, myths or their perspectives about about mm-hmm. the uh, main uh, indian hindu myths so i think the problem is also uh, and responsibility is also on the part of the people who publicize if it's included in our primary education uh, if mm-hmm. we make it a part of our school if exactly school trips or even calling these yeah. artisans to the school to tell these stories right. i mean it is so absurd now that i think about it that the doordarshan version of uh, ramayan uh, everybody in ayodhya and everybody in lanka is wearing the same clothing <laughs> right <laughs> I mean, Durdarshan uh, may have low budget, but even if you look at the high budget productions yeah, totally. of Sony and Star yeah, Plus, yeah, that are still yeah, running. Yeah. That they still run in some parts of India. Everybody is going to wear the same clothing. The mm-hmm. sets are going mm-hmm. to look. Maybe the Lanka <laughs> sets would have, you know, some the same some kind yeah. of architectural elements, but still, like it just doesn't yeah. feel like. Yeah. and all the women are dressed as apsaras they all have like dangly bra situations <laughs> we need more inclusivity we need more diversity in our narratives as well <laughs> i think we also need to separate history from mythology like we can acknowledge that they are linked but one of the reasons why i think mythology has not evolved is because like history you're sort of assuming that it's a thing of the past and you can't really have too many interpretations of it because these are you know you somehow or the other you've ascribed a historicity to things yeah and you're like yeah those places exist a lot of the things are real but not all of it is and you need to acknowledge that and that's the only way you can move on and be open to other interpretations right because it's one thing saying yeah. i'm reinterpreting uh, something that is largely like it's yeah. more a narrative on how people live and on the human condition it's another to say i want to change the date and the main characters you're not doing that but that's what <laughs> it can be perceived as ki and that's sort of what it is being perceived as if you look at what's happening in india right now where people are mad ki somewhere where somebody was born is in so and so year has been ruined right correct, correct. so but that's what it is i think you need to separate it that way and only then will mythology start moving and evolving and sort of drifting into something yeah the meaning of mythology will be more interpretative will be more totally like thing of a cultural thing that exists and not just take it word to word 100% yeah. absolutely it has been great to know so many myths about the mythology <laughs> and trying to <laughs> see where we can find a connection to it for someone like me who's lost it and for <laughs> other people who we encourage to find more inclusive and diverse narratives from alternative perspectives for me it's just like uh it's great that we are able to have this conversation i say this every time when we uh, have a conversation that there is a space now to have these conversations and uh and to have questions and to uh discuss those questions and to not reject questioning and to me that is very important and uh something that is that i feel adds to my nourishment totally yes so thank you shivani for coming and talking to us <laughs> also also sh- shout out to the over smart girls podcast my like 100% f- 
favorite podcast that everybody should listen to. Today's guest was one of the over smart girls who hosts the over smart girls podcast. And if you have listened to her, she is very smart. Not over smart, perhaps she's very smart. <laughs> well, well, well. No, but it is the point that like we need to accept. Like it is completely fine being over smart, and that is what I love about it. That like. uh every time i have a conversation with a man and and if i come across as somebody who's smart they'll try and explain things to me and what you have done is you've made it okay for me to be smart Don't or over right my narrative from this episode <laughs> i am in charge of my narrative exactly <laughs> don't make me into another heroine of mythology <laughs> or like damsel in distress who needs advice <laughs> Yeah, don't cut off any noses on my behalf. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> no, no. Exactly. It has been great. I have loved being on uh, on uh, your podcast. Thanks everyone and hope uh, I hope that uh, anyone who's listening and who is willing to color their walls would come on our podcast and uh, please treat this space as a wall that you can Yay. color on. Bye-bye. Bye. In today's episode the sitar playing that you heard was by my amazingly talented friend Aditi and I would like to thank the Indian Instrumental Ensemble of the National University of Singapore and its artistic director Mr Nawaz Mirajkar for lending us this beautiful piece thank you <laughs>